Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Johannesburg is Professor Georgia Dimitriou, who is a senior consultant at Wits University and teaches at the Charlotte Makeke Hospital. She is also a consultant working in the Wits Donald Gordon Medical Center. She is passionate about new developments and research in medical oncology and strongly believes in multidisciplinary care. Her areas of special interest include endocrine, gastrointestinal, and breast tumors. Welcome to the show. Thank you so very much for your kind invitation. Prof. Dimitri, to begin with, please, can you tell us more about the work that you do specifically at the university? So within the Charlotte Macheke Johannesburg Academic Hospital, I'm one of the senior consultants in the Division of Medical Oncology, which falls under the Department of Internal Medicine. And um, the unit runs five clinics a week um, where we see outpatient um, medical oncology patients, assess them, administer chemotherapy and do their follow-up care. So that's the one aspect, which is the clinical management of patients. Um, In addition, I do ward rounds with junior staff, which we treat as business rounds to um, supervise patient care on the wards. And also we use those as teaching ward rounds to also, um, you know, have junior staff um, be aware of certain nuances of care where we can maybe um, modify care. I also do undergraduate and postgraduate teaching Um, within the university um, spectrum and that is bedside tutorials as well as didactic lectures. So that's what I do within the university and state practice and in private practice I see patients who have various cancers for treatment and follow-up. Also very important is there are multidisciplinary meetings that we have now via Teams and Zoom links, because unfortunately, um, face-to-face meetings aren't really possible during the COVID pandemic. But um, we discuss patients' cases um, with other colleagues who are involved in their care or need to be involved in their care to be sure that um, we have the most holistic approach to the patient care and outcomes hopefully will be improved by that. There's such a rich dynamic to the teaching component, and it is so encompassing. You mentioned that you're doing aspects both from from an undergrad as well as a postgrad perspective. What prompted you to pursue a career in oncology to begin with? So it's very interesting that as an undergraduate, I probably had very little exposure to medical oncology. Um, We really um, don't get much exposure as undergraduates, at least we didn't. Um, And the first time I encountered the medical oncology department was when I rotated through as a medical officer fresh out of my internship at Charlotte Macheke. And um, at that point, I suddenly just understood the nuances of treatment, the the wide spectrum of treatment that we have available to treat these oncology patients. And um, we we do treatment that is sometimes quite harsh. Um, Patients have significant side effects from their treatment they have hair loss, they have nausea. There's a, there's a host of side effects from the treatments we do. And yet you say to a patient, be back in a week and I'm going to do more of the same. 
and and the patients are back because the will to to survive, the will to to be healed, the will to to just be there for the next milestone um, in a patient's life and their family's lives is so strong that despite the difficult side effects that our treatments often bring, the um, the will to survive, the will to to be there. Um, for their family and loved ones um, is the overriding thing. So if a patient is willing to go through all of that, um, how can you not meet them halfway? So I find my patients an inspiration daily. And as hard as the work might be, I take inspiration from my patients. And that's why I chose to do oncology. I would imagine, apart from the physical elements that people go through, that your patients endure because it is harsh treatments, but from your perspective as well, it must be incredibly emotional because people are are very vulnerable at such a down point in their life and looking for hope and a way through for survival. So I think the one thing I always say to my patients is we have to have an absolute relationship of trust. So when it's going well and I'm very happy with responses, uh, I say to them that that is exactly the case. I hope I'm never harsh, um, but I always try and be honest if the prognosis is not good because I think if you lose that relationship of trust, um, nothing you say in, in the scenario of your, of your consult actually can ever be retrieved. So I would hope that I'm always honest. I hope I would, I'm always empathetic and kind and never deliver the bad information a harsh way but certainly um, you know you walk a long road with patients you get to know what's going on in their lives and as hard as it is on me I know it's harder on my patients so um, I'm in awe of their strength I'm in awe of their resilience and um, you know anything I do as I say I meet them halfway um, and we walk a, a long road together but it's very rewarding because their successes are my successes and um, their disappointments are my disappointments. I think the day I no longer feel the pain, the empathy, um, that would be when I say to myself, maybe I need to reinvent myself and, and move into a different field of medicine. Staying for a moment on the dynamics of medicine and within the oncology field, there are continuous developments happening all the time. Can you please tell us about some of the collaborations or research projects that you currently have underway, either just within the South African context or with other counterparts in in different countries around the world? So we are, through the BITS Clinical Research um, Unit, um, involved in multiple multinational clinical trials. And those clinical trials really are usually phase two and phase three studies, which are almost the registration studies for drugs in a certain sphere of medicine. Um, And having those trials available for our patients, both in the state and the private sector, means that many patients get access to potential therapies that are cutting edge and will bring benefit to them long before they would maybe be commercially available. The one thing is those international studies are very collaborative, often run in 20, 30 countries around the world. And it's wonderful to work with colleagues to exchange ideas, but also to bring patients um, cutting-edge therapies. In terms of the local scenario, there are a couple of studies with colleagues we are trying to get where we can study various drugs in the South African scenario. And that is more to focus on our local population as opposed to just the international studies that have maybe a broader overview and a broader um, sort of 
scope of reference, but we also want to see in our local population, are there any differences in how people respond to treatment? So that really is, um, you know, many of the, the collaborations that we have going. And then within the multidisciplinary meetings, we co-educate each other. So, you know, a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, often the geneticists, we have a broad panel of radiologists as well and pathologists. We all engage, discuss cases and seeing some things from a different person's perspective often does allow us to grow our own knowledge and also disseminate knowledge to other spheres in, in the disciplines that we engage with. Hi, this is Lyra, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. Today, we're talking to Professor Georgia Demetrio, who is a senior consultant medical oncologist at Wits University and Charlotte Makeke Hospital. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. COVID has really dominated most conversations for well over a year now. And I think that that sometimes de-emphasizes the importance of other health conditions, which continue to impact populations. If we look at some statistics from the South African National Cancer Registry dating to 2016, it indicated the breast, cervical, and colorectal cancers are the three most common types of cancers affecting women. In your view, what are some of the risk factors for women regarding these types of cancers? So maybe I'll start with cervical cancer, which is the second most common cancer in women. We know that um, exposure to human papillomavirus or the HPV virus increases the risk of cervical cancer and is probably the etiological agent in most cases. And from that point of view, cervical cancer used to be the most common cancer in women in South Africa. It was overtaken by breast cancer. And regular pap smears um, obviously allow us to detect cells that are changing prior to them maybe becoming fully malignant. And that is the one thing where I think we've seen a little bit of a reduction in incidence because patients are going for various screening tests. But the greatest sort of move forward in the field of cervical cancer is in fact the human papillomavirus vaccine, which um, has been rolled out in South Africa for um, young girls prior to them being sexually active within the sort of state um, schooling system. And hopefully what we will see from a cervical cancer point of view is as we have more uptake and, and we see down the line the benefits of the vaccination program, that um, cervical cancer will become less and less common. So um, certainly the risk factor for that is human papillomavirus exposure, but the vaccine will hopefully, if we are lucky and we can get good penetrance, maybe even see a eradication of cervical cancer as a major health concern for women in South Africa. So that's um, a risk, but also something where we can intervene that would be such a significant achievement of being able to eradicate something that is such a high risk. Yeah, I think the, the most important thing there is to, to have good penetrance of vaccination and also to have um, regular screening because even with the vaccination, it, it covers most of the most aggressive forms of the virus. 
but early screening as well will play a huge role in identifying early changes that can be halted before they become an infected cancer. So very exciting for cervical cancer. Yes, we have new drugs that we can treat the cancer with, but we would rather prevent a cancer than have to treat one. And with respect to breast cancer, because obviously that is another cancer that, that really affects women. Yeah, so that is the most common cancer in women in South Africa. From that point of view, um, there are certain risks that we can modify and there are certain risks that we can't modify. We do know that there is a familial risk in some families with breast cancer, where especially with the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, women are very much more prone to developing breast cancer and can also be bilateral breast cancer and sometimes at a younger age than normal. So we can't always modify genetic risk. Um, It's what we're born with. But awareness of genetic risk is very important because patients where there is a genetic risk would potentially benefit from going into a high-risk screening program. So we know that we must maybe employ more regular screening and maybe different screening to these patients um, to pick up cancers if they are going to occur early where they are still curable. Other non-modifiable risks are potentially the age at which a woman um, has her period start and the age at which she goes into menopause. We can't modify as well sometimes um, exposure to radiation, for example. Some women who have radiation when they are quite young for other cancers such as Hodgkin's disease to the breast tissue are at a higher risk. But again, those patients we would put into a scenario of high-risk screening. The risk factors we can potentially modify are reducing saturated fats in our diet, reducing refined sugars in our diet, limiting alcohol intake, and increasing exercise. We know that patients who have a better body mass index tend to have a lower incidence of breast cancer. So I always say to patients, it's not all on you. There are certain things that you cannot control. So there's no guilt in this process. We mustn't look at that and say, oh, well, you've got a cancer because you've done something wrong. I don't believe that that is the way we should view it. We should be able to tell patients what they can do to reduce risk, but be aware that even the most conscientious patient from a health and diet and exercise point of view can still develop a cancer and it's not their fault. We just need to be pragmatic about how we manage things. And then in terms of colorectal cancer, um, we probably are not in the same sort of space in terms of advocating for um, colon cancer screening um, in terms of age scenario. The previous recommendations used to be to have screening for colon cancer from the age of 50 and then to repeat it every five years if everything is clear. But the American guidelines have now changed to saying that patients should be screened from the age of 45 with a colonoscopy every three to five years, um, depending on whether or not polyps are found. Important to note that for colorectal cancer, um, there's a strong family um, association. So if there's a family history, there are certain also genetic um, predispositions um, that do affect the age at which some people develop colorectal cancer. So in high-risk families where we've identified a high-risk family, to advise that the family members start screening for colorectal cancer earlier than they would otherwise do. And just to touch on the whole screening scenario, um, you alluded to COVID really putting a lot of other things on the back burner. And I think that is the catastrophe we're going to face um, from the 
screening point of view for cancers. A lot of patients um, didn't have their regular mammograms last year. A lot of patients didn't have their pap smears or potentially their colonoscopies last year out of fear and anxiety of exposure to COVID. So we are unfortunately seeing patients presenting with more advanced cancers that might have been picked up earlier. You're so right. And I would say I'm one of those patients who deliberately delayed not going for my annual checkup. And it's, it's totally understandable. I think we were all a little bit like deers in the headlight, you know, looking at this pandemic and going, I don't want to increase my risk in any way. And I think we were hopeful that it might be a three to six month problem and then life would go back to normal. How wrong we were, unfortunately, that this is still with us almost 15, 16, 18 months down the line. Um, so I keep saying to patients, you know, yes, COVID is a risk, but um, as a healthcare worker who's been in the front line, the entire duration of the pandemic, um, you know, wear your mask, sanitize your hands, be vigilant, don't touch your face, um, reduce your exposure where you can, but you've got to continue with things that need to be done for other illnesses. I mean, we, we could not stop breast cancer treatment. Patients got chemotherapy throughout this pandemic because while the COVID is a potential risk, the cancer that patients already had was a already present and real risk as well. So I say to patients for screening, please, you know, just be sure that you're vigilant, wear your mask, sanitize. All the units are taking precautions to try and keep you as safe as possible. But let's not forget about the collateral damage of of not doing our screening um, examinations. So please, everybody, this is the one thing that people take away from this is, you know, to keep going for their regular screening program um, tests. Thank you for that important reminder. I will be booking my appointment after this call. Hi, my name is Yvonne Chakachaka and I'm UNICEF and Rollback Malaria Goodwill Ambassador. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in the struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy. A program against social ills such as racism, socio-economic class division and gender-based violence. Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amalia Balka every week on this day at this time. Today, we're talking to Professor Georgia Demetrio, who is a senior consultant medical oncologist at Wits University and Charlotte McKeke Hospital. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof. Demetrio, looking at your resume, you graduated with an MBCHB from the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg in 1995, obtained your FCP as a medical oncologist in 2004. Your careers spanned over 25 years, and you still have very strong ongoing relationships with institutions that are responsible for producing medical professionals. Do you think that the environment in South Africa is supportive enough towards female doctors? And are medical schools in South Africa doing enough to encourage women to pursue careers in medicine? So I think it's interesting because, in fact, at um, the University of the Witwatersrand, where I have done my undergraduate training and where I have um, basically been for my entire working career, 
I can safely say to you, I think that we are getting women into the medical schools. In fact, we have a, over 50% um, of our students that are, in fact, females. So at that point, I think um, certainly, I think there was, a, there was definitely a push to get more females in the medical school to even out the, the gender numbers. And I think we've achieved that. Um, I do worry that once um, females have entered into the medical sphere, there is maybe some streams of medicine that are a little bit more difficult, be it for um, family reasons, you know, some of the female students and doctors, sort of junior doctors in their career, might need to take a small hiatus um, to maybe have a family. So there are social pressures that then make certain aspects of medicine harder to pursue. But even in the classically male um, spheres and male roles within medicine, we are seeing a great uptake of females within, for example, our orthopedics department, where they have a significant number of trainees who are female in the surgical disciplines. Um, and certainly in the medicine field, in terms of internal medicine, we do have a significant, almost 50% proportion of our specialists who are females. So I do think there's been a strong push to try and even out the gender numbers. And I think we're achieving that. We are achieving that. And it helps for um, female um, junior doctors and colleagues and students to see um, their lecturers who are also, you know, able to stay within the structures, able to keep teaching, stay within clinical medicine and, and be, um, have a fulfilling role within both academia, clinical medicine, but also hopefully on their, in their personal lives. It's comforting to note that the intake is at 50-50, so that we're still getting that balance through of gender. And also that, like you say, you've got role models in place as, as lecturers who are proving that it is possible that you can have a successful career, you can have a family. All of these opportunities are available to you. It's not a, an either or. So... I think the beauty of where we are is many women are also having their, their families a little bit later um, in life, which allows us to potentially get to a point in our career where we say, okay, we've achieved a certain amount of, um, sort of the academic milestones that we want to get to. Now I can pause and I can have a family. So I think the beauty about where we are today is we have choices. Um, and, you know, if it is someone's choice to have a family, they can, they can do that within the gambit of medical training, but they can also say, well, that's not what I want for myself. And, and we are able to make those individual choices for ourselves. So I think the stereotypes are hopefully things we are moving away from. And we are saying to each individual, um, find what resonates with you. You know, what are your goals? What are your ambitions? Um, where do you want to see yourself in five and 10 years time? And um, there's a lot more support for people following different routes along the, along the academic process um, to allow them to have their families or not, if that is what they, what they would want. And we're living and leading longer lives. And with that longevity, I think that we, we almost have to expand on our, uh, let's say, our, our longevity within the career space so that we've got, we've got more to offer and we've got more time to fulfill that offering. And I think, you know, where you are happy in what you do, be that personal life or professional life, 
um, that does translate to enthusiasm in your other spheres. So, you know, if you are feeling fulfilled um, work-wise, I think that translates into what you take home and how fulfilled you are in your private life might also translate into how you bring that to the work scenario. So I think there's, there's so many more um, options that we have. And I think what I always want to say to all my junior female colleagues is just search your heart and see where you want to see yourself in five and 10 years. What do you really want from life? And then pursue that. Um, don't, don't allow people to put you into that cookie cutter sort of conveyor belt of this is how it should be and this is how you must do it. Um, and that is, that is a beauty of where we find ourselves today. It's great to hear that. And, but there are still challenges that women contend with. And, you know, every time we have these conversations, sometimes my eyes get opened wide and thinking that we still have to endure some of these practices. For want of an example, there was a study done by McKinsey a while ago, which raised the issue of likability bias, where success and likability are positively correlated with men, but negatively correlated for women. So if a woman is competent, she doesn't seem nice enough. But if she seems too nice, she's considered less competent. And this obviously impacts on the way that uh, women are affected with regards to their promotions, performance reviews, because if we are, are seen as being too nice and incompetent, then on the other hand, if we are very assertive and projecting this view of confidence, we are treated in this double standard mode and thus miss out on, on opportunities which are, are rightfully open and, and available to us. What's your view on this subject of how women are treated differently within the workplace to men? So it's quite interesting because um, maybe naively, when I was sort of a junior sort of um, doctor and a junior consultant, um, I, I was sort of a little bit oblivious to, to gender bias, you know. I, I just felt that this is what I wanted to do and I pursued it and um, I was, it was maybe a good thing that I was somewhat um, sort of blinded to, to the, the subtle and unmentioned sort of bias that, that happens in, I guess, any sphere of, um, of the a professional life. At the end of the day, I think those society biases do transcend into the workplace. As I got a little bit more senior within um, my department, I sort of suddenly became a little bit more aware that there is potentially a bit of a glass ceiling um, and that if you are, as you say, a little bit more assertive, then you are seen as aggressive. Not So the, 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 the adjectives we use for women who are successful, who are as um, career-minded potentially as their male colleagues is more of a negative um, adjective as opposed to a positive one. So I would say they do what you do well. Do what you do for the right reasons and, and, and just the rest follows. You're not going to be liked by everyone um, in your field and that's not necessarily got anything to do with whether you're female or male, but maybe just that you happen to be ahead of someone in the queue. So, um, you know, we, we have to try and transform that um, unconscious bias, I think, that we have in society and in professional spheres. But um, my best advice to women is to just um, put your head down, um, do what you feel is right, um, do it as well as you can, strive for excellence. 
and um, it then becomes undeniable that you are the best person for that position. Um, and if the adjective is sometimes a little bit less complimentary than it might be if it's used for um, one of your male colleagues, so be it. So be it. At the end, um, I think it all does come out in the wash and at the end, um, good work is recognised. I like that comment of striving for excellence because when you are doing great work, that your, your work speaks for itself and that speaks for you. It's interesting. I was involved in a panel discussion at the World um, Gastrointestinal Conference, in fact, this weekend, um, which worked around um, discussing um, the majority-minority um, in, in oncology. And um, it's interesting that under 40, um, the European Society of Medical Oncology has got more females um, than males in the profession. And yet in leadership roles, um, it's a scant 20-odd percent um, that are in leadership positions. Um, and uh, we were discussing how we construct this majority-minority um, where we do have an equal voice. And I think the, the first question that they asked of the panelists was, how would you define a successful female oncologist? And my answer to that is, I don't think we should be defining a successful female oncologist. We need to define a successful oncologist. And that is where you say, I'm going for excellence in my field and it should not be tempered by, am I female or male? Um, so that's really, you know, that's, that, that's my philosophy. Thinking about what you've just said, so one, the point of 20% as being kind of a, a number of women in leadership, we see that number repeated in almost every sector of industry, uh, whether it is listed companies, um, in the academic space, as you've just mentioned now within the field of oncology. Yet at the same time, when we look at the representation lower down the levels and looking at the age category of, of under 40, we know that almost the world over that more women have a tertiary qualification than men and are really trying to pursue, or well, let's say advance their academics so that they have got qualifications behind them. Do you think that in part the mix within the leadership dynamic is perhaps a generational issue that we will have to almost work through a generation to start seeing more women come into leadership roles as part of a socialization process? Uh, it is changing. Um, if you go back um, maybe a decade, the number was around about 10% um, females in leadership roles. So uh, those numbers can only but improve. You cannot have more than 50% of your workforce being female and not have that translate into leadership down the line. But we need to be conscious about having the discussion. And in having the discussion, it shouldn't only be amongst ourselves. It needs to be with our male colleagues who also need to be at the table. Because I think unless we as a community um, acknowledge that everybody who has got something to offer has got a seat at the table, we will not advance the discussion. So um, I think from that point of view, certainly we can keep working at it and we can keep discussing it in our own forums, but also including male colleagues. And not everybody is like-minded. And I think that over time um, will change. But um, we make inroads one little bit at a time and it's to continue striving for those changes. I think COVID also potentially is going to set some of the um, 
uh, sort of oncologists back somewhat in their career. Certainly from a research output point of view, um, through the pandemic, um, women's output has reduced. And I think it's because with the pandemic, um, many children being at home, homeschooled, and all the rest that was um, a consequence of what was going on, um, there was a greater burden on um, in terms of picking up a lot of duties in the home. And um, therefore, research capability went down more so in females than in males. And we're hoping that over time that will also correct itself back to sort of then seeing research output up to about 35% where it was pre, pre, pre the pandemic. You're so right. COVID is just, it, it impacts on absolutely everything. Uh, and there's these almost hidden elements that you don't think about, but then you, you realize that the, the added burden of taking on more household work, of taking on schooling, which is a challenge, I think, in anyone's books, and still having to perform with your normal workload is exceptionally challenging. There's no doubt. And um, there was a survey done in terms of um, did females in the, in the profession feel that um, there was a greater burden on them than their male colleagues. And it was interesting that even the male colleagues acknowledged in the, in the survey that um, there was a greater burden in terms of picking up home responsibilities, be it um, uh, cleaning or childcare or teaching, homeschooling um, in the females in the, in the community as opposed to, to males. So we are going to feel, I think, this pandemic's effects for a while yet. Um, and it's also just to acknowledge that um, sometimes when, you're, when you really are exhausted and there isn't anything left to give, a short little time out, because I think the, the thing to watch for is not burning out when you're trying to be all things to all people, um, sometimes you forget to take care of yourself. So just um, what I do say to some of my junior colleagues, female colleagues is, you know, just take some time for yourself. Pencil in a little one hour somewhere in the week where you can do something that just um, replenishes you and, and sort of feeds your soul because you can't keep giving and giving when you are feeling like you're going backwards from an emotional point of view. That's a really good point of advice. Hi, I'm Zonke Digana, a South African Afro-soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, we're talking to Professor Georgia Dimitrio, who is a senior consultant medical oncologist at Wits University and Charlotte Makeke Hospital. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof. Dimitrio, we're coming towards the end of the show, and what I'd like to ask you now is about your personal journey, um, particularly with regards to what you view as some of your success factors. Some of our guests have spoken about hard work, their upbringing and perseverance. In your opinion, what have been some of the key drivers to your success? So I have a very strong mother. Um, and I think the women around us sometimes um, let us dream and let us believe that we can. Um, so she's, you know, a strong woman who, you know, even if she faced adversity, would face it head on. Um, who always gave her girls, I have a sister, the narrative that we can be anything we choose to be. Um, if we're willing to work hard enough um, at it, we can be anything we choose to be. So I think that for me, um, it, it made me believe, and that's why I say I was quite naive maybe early on in my career that I never perceived a difference between male and female colleagues. 
um, in terms of opportunity is because I truly believed that I could be anything I chose to be if I was willing to put in the hard work. So I credit her with um, a lot of that. I've been fortunate to be able to access an excellent education, both um, um, in terms of schooling and in terms of my um, university education. Um, I've been lucky that I live in Johannesburg. It wasn't hard. It was, there weren't financial obstacles to having to move out of town and all the rest and find accommodation. So, you know, that is a great opportunity. So I think for me, the legacy is I hope that every generation um, looks at women in their lives. And I hope all the girls and women out there have got strong women in their lives that they can look up to because if we can just let one person dream and one person believe that they can achieve what they want, um, they will hopefully exceed us in their achievements. Um, because I think if we continue to move forward, it's not to say, well, I've achieved what I've achieved and I'm going to be the best there was. Um, I hope I achieve what I achieve and there are young women and, and girls who, who see what I've potentially achieved in my sphere and, and aim to do better and aim to go further and carry all of us with them. That's a really lovely legacy and so pertinent of being able to, to give back because if we can help one other person and they can pay it forwards to another, we have a, a ripple effect and a snowball effect in place. And lastly, as we close out the conversation today, please, can you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and women in Africa that are listening to the show? Just know who you are, know what you would want for yourself, and then do everything you can and work hard to achieve that. Strive for excellence. Um, don't accept mediocrity. And be true to yourself. Be true to yourself and your ambitions and, and just work hard at it. And yeah, be the best you can. And if you're not okay today and um, today's been a tough day, that's okay. Be kind to yourself. Um, and then tomorrow you dust yourself off, you pick yourself up and you start again and you keep striving for excellence in everything you do. What a great message. Thank you very much. And thanks for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Georgia Demetrio, who is a senior consultant medical oncologist at Wits University and Charlotte McKeke Hospital.